was like, you know what, if I'm going back to school, it'll be for something that I'm passionate about. And then I found the sustainable practices program. And I was like, this is, uh, this seems right. Learn, have learned so much in the, throughout this program. Um, but I also have learned that there's so much I don't know, which is where that, that feeling of like, where do I go from here? Uh, sets in because it's like there's so many different ways that you can take sustainability. One of the reasons I started this is because I got like really, really depressed about the future. And the more I learned, the more I was like, oh, like it's not like, yeah, it's going to be bad, but it's not written in stone. We can have an effect. And as my degree got going, I um, I learned like, oh, there's there's like investment groups that are trying to make sure that people invest in companies that are doing better. They're pushing these companies to do better. And there's political groups and there's like, you know, there's people in every discipline that I, and I had no idea. Um, so I wanted to make this for my past self or anyone else who was getting like sucked into the climate doom and give them an option of like, once you start doing something, you're like, oh, there's so much power here. There's so much we can do. There's so much effect that we can have, but when you, when you're so overwhelmed by it and you don't know, then you don't do anything. Our mini-series is called Climate Change is Happening, Now What? We didn't want to continue the back and forth about if climate change is happening. We just wanted to get to the now what are we doing beyond that so that that can inspire people that, hey, there is work being done. This work can be a model for other um, areas that want to do similar work or want to respond in their own ways. Welcome to the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast and our special mini-series, Climate Change is Happening, Now What? Produced for the University of Washington Bothell and Cascadia College. This mini-series is a conversation about the future of sustainability, discussing the mitigation and adaptation strategies that are already taking place in our community towards the creation of a better future. Let's get started. Hey, Miguel, you ready for our last episode? Hey, Kemi. Yeah, I can't believe it's almost over. In our final episode, we'll look back on the miniseries and reflect on the conversations we had with different professionals along the way and on some of the lessons we learned personally from doing this project. Things might sound a little bit different than our other episodes. You'll hear from questions Cammy and I have for each other and from some of the things our guests shared with us. It seems like just yesterday we had our first episode and it was way back in January. Uh, I remember talking to Derek and Angie and being so uh, impressed with all the work that's going on at DNR. Yeah, I was really nervous, but it ended up turning out pretty all right. They, they taught us a lot about uh, wildfires and wildfire safety, and I definitely changed the way I think about it now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I was very nervous going into that first episode. Um, a lot of deep breaths leading up to it. So um, yeah, let's listen back to some of the things we talked about with them. My name is Angie Lane. I am currently the assistant division manager in the wildfire division. My section that I oversee is plans and information. Our setup is similar to what you might see on a fire team. You know, you have a plans section, information section, and then you'll have operations. So we have an operations and aviation ADM, and then we have a logistics ADM. In plans and information, uh, we're responsible for fire intelligence, fire situation, weather, training, 
some of the IT support and business systems type analysis for the division. Prior to working for DNR, I worked for both Office of Emergency Management in Oregon. I was the state hazard mitigation officer there working with FEMA on We implemented grant funds for projects that dealt with natural hazard mitigation. Prior to being at Office of Emergency Management, I worked for Oregon Department of Forestry. And so I was in the fire program. And I was also in our private forests division where we assist landowners with their forest health and forest practices type activities. Derek Churchill, and I work for the Washington uh, State Department of Natural Resources in our Forest Health and Resiliency Division. Uh, And I work as a forest health scientist and I'm part of a team that works on uh, Washington's uh, 20 year plan for Central and Eastern Washington or Forest Health Plan. That plan is really focused on proactively improving the health of our forests uh, in Central and Eastern Washington to both reduce Uh, risk of of big wildfires, and also um, prepare them for climate change. Uh, Climate change is really starting to happen. Uh, We still have a little more time in Washington, we feel, and so we want to proactively get our forests in better shape instead of just responding uh, to to these, uh, you know, big fires and whatnot. Um, My job specifically, uh, I do what's called uh, landscape evaluation. So we have prioritized areas in central and eastern Washington uh, where risks are the highest. And so I do an evaluation, again, with it with a team of other scientists to see how much do we need to treat in those landscapes with both prescribed fire and also mechanical treatments to, to basically reduce the number of trees and also the other fuel, shrubs and grasses and woody fuels um, and, and to get those forests, again, in, in a more open conditions. So when wildfires do happen, uh, not as many trees die. And also they're more drought resistant as well because there's, there's fewer trees trying to suck up the water. So we, we figure out how much of these landscapes need to have these kinds of treatments. Uh, and then also where the sort of best locations in the landscape to do that. And finally, I'd just say I've uh, been, been doing this job for about three years. Um, And before that, uh, I worked at the University of Washington as a researcher, looking at and researching a lot of these issues. I worked also worked as a forestry consultant, working with uh, a range of private and public landowners, uh, helping them sort of figure out a a variety of different forest health or forest management problems or challenges. I have never even really imagined it before, but doing this episode with them and hearing from them has uh, been really enlightening about just how these different um, organizations work so that we can live all of our lives and not think about it, you know? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work going on at DNR and that I didn't even know was going on behind the scenes. So I'm, for one, glad that I can sleep at night knowing that other people are doing that hard work. Um, So Cammie, I have a question for you. Um, My first question to you is, if you were to do this podcast over again, uh, maybe with more time, uh, is there an episode that you wish you could have done? Hmm, that's a, that's a really hard question. Um, when I first had the concept for this podcast, it was a very different angle. I was thinking a lot more of like, um, I think um, Alexa 
she said that she kind of dubbed my concept as like um, sustainability and psychology. It was very much like human centric, human focused. So there was some episodes in there about like how to um, how to manage feelings of um, insecurity or anxiety or grief about climate change. Um, and I think that would have been really interesting. I think the goal of our podcast, in a sense, was to address like climate grief, for example, but it's not something that we talked about um, head on. And for me, I know there are some other topics that I would have liked to cover. Um, and like you said, from the beginning, you had one, we had one outlook of what we thought the podcast would look like. And it kind of took its own shape as we continued doing it. Um, I would say that maybe doing an episode on sustainability and equity would have been good to have. And we talked to some people doing some of the work in that area. And I know this is one of the topics that we talked about when we were planning, um, but energy, we didn't really, like now having done the podcast, I think it would have been cool to have an episode actually dedicated to energy, whether that's fossil fuels, renewables. I think we both agree that there's a lot of information out there on energy already. And that's like a very hot topic. So we wanted to focus on maybe some other areas that we're not getting as much of a spotlight, but um, definitely learning a learning uh, process. Absolutely. I think at the beginning of this podcast, um, it was really hard to plan for because we didn't really know what we were getting into. We've never done this before. If we did it again, I would have um, talked more about what we expected the podcast to look like, I think, done more of the like vision sort of stuff about the podcast, the big picture stuff that I think we we kind of tried to do, but then we didn't really know how to do. I think that might have helped smooth some of it out, but we really were not prepared to even do that because we just know we just jumped in, you know? Yeah, time is definitely a factor. Um, and but also we weren't I think that now having done a few laps, we know a little bit more of what it takes what the process is like to produce an episode. And so when we, if we were starting from scratch again, we would have that experience to actually plan in a way where we could really have that overarching uh, vision of where we want to take this show. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think we had the experience to even kind of have that conversation for sure. Speaking of conversations, uh, do you remember our second episode? That was a riot. <laughs> it, was, it was really fun talking to all of those people from uh, that community, Sangaya. Speaking with the people from Sangaya was really an interesting conversation because they brought a whole new perspective that I'd never heard of about community and what living in community could actually be like. Because for us, it just seems like such a detached idea of what community is right now and and they were all just really I think they were all just really good people to talk to um they all seem to have good values and care for one another and they shared more of the kind of warmth that we should see in the world yeah it was really impactful let's listen back and remember who we talked to and a little bit of what they had to say hi everybody my name is Diane my role at the community is I've lived here for, uh, let's say, four years, I think. Uh, and I 
uh, plug into the community in a number of ways um, in our uh, food program, which is uh, what we call the Garden to Table Club. Uh, this kind of central aspect of our community life is uh, shared meals. And so I, I participate as uh, a cook in, the, in that program. Um, I, I also help to uh, facilitate our uh, emergency preparedness committee. And uh, we're trying to hold that not just as emergency preparedness for let's say earthquake, et cetera, but starting to widen the conversation into uh, resilience you know, a community level resilience towards some of the major effects that uh, the climate crisis acceleration is having. Uh, so starting to, to start thinking about that and deep adaptation and how is, what's the role of community in uh, living in a world of, of deep ad adaptation. Hi, uh, my name's Patricia Newkirk and uh, Patricia is fine. Let's see, I. I don't even know where to begin. I, I guess I should say, I can't even remember how many years I've lived here at Sangai. Maybe somebody else can tell me when I moved in, but I started as the um, garden manager, which is what uh, now uh, Anita does, but she changed the title to garden steward. But so for about eight years, I was the garden manager and um, transitioned the garden from a, a organic concept uh, which was always the case, it was an organic garden, but we then started to pick up the concepts of permaculture and applying permaculture design uh, to the garden. Um, I have since passed that lovely job onto Anita and it's fun to watch it continue. Let's see what else, I'm, I'm a member of our um, officers of the organization. I'm also uh, on a committee that is looking at um, power imbalances and the way that we make decisions uh, and how people have a voice in the community, whether or not um, there's always power imbalances, but many a times that uh, they're, they're subtle and we don't see them, uh, especially if we are in a position of power. And so we're, we're trying to bring that to our consciousness and look at ways that we can mitigate the power imbalances and uh, make sure that everybody has a full voice in the community. Hi, um, I'm Brian Bonsnauer, uh, and Brian, call me Brian, that's fine. Um, I've also, I also teach at Cascadia, so it's nice to have this connection. Um, and <clears throat> was involved in, uh, in helping set up the BASS program. So it's kind of, it's, it was great to hear you guys starting this podcast. I would say I have sort of three main roles or titles at Sangaya. The first is Dragon Listener. Second, uh, Cobb Squisher. And the third is the designated trickster. I think those are my main roles at Sangaya. Um, <laughs> I, okay, I, I, can, you, can you just clarify? <laughs> are, are those Probably are not, roles? but... Um, <laughs> Go ahead. Oh man, if I knew that we could make up our titles like that, I would have come up with better titles. <laughs> Um, but that's, um, yeah, so I think Sangaya um, has a long history of uh, silly names. Um, and one of uh, the names for the one of the kind of key committees here is the Biogaians, um, which is uh, the, the group that deals with the garden and the, the land here. And so I'm uh, 
involved in that group, um, thinking of that, especially now, because I just sorted the tomato seeds for starting them on Sunday, um, get those in the greenhouse. The, those are generally the first of the, the garden plants that go in in the spring or that go into the greenhouse anyway in the spring. And um, on sabbatical this year, so I've been very involved in a lot of the construction projects. We found that the, this time of COVID has been actually really a lovely time to do a lot of work on physical infrastructure. And so that's been, been a lot of fun working to kitchen remodel and working on our, our outdoor plaza gathering space. Um, and so that's been, those have been some fun things I've been working on lately. Yeah, that was well, I'm Nancy and you can call me that or you can call me Gigi because I'm the next to the oldest person in the community and I'm a grandmother and a great grandmother. And I, the children that grew up from 2000 to 2010 or 15 are so, I'm so connected to them that um, they grew up closer than my grandchildren. And I'm still, I still connect with them. And now we have a little, almost two-year-old. And so great-grandma is okay. And you can call me Nancy or Gigi, I don't care. Um, I've been, my husband, Fred and I, Fred died 10 years ago. And he and I started the bulk food program here at Sangaya. And so, I'm still doing the bulk food ordering and parceling and all of that. And um, I don't cook. And I, I used to be a shopper. That was one thing I loved to do. And then in COVID, they wouldn't let us old folks shop. So I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but it's okay. Anyway, I'm on the trust group with um, Anita and Diane. Um, and to make me feel important, I was named the project manager for rebuilding the pump house. And it was so much fun. I could boss the guys around or the, the people around. And I did a lot of phoning and emailing and just, just trying to connect people. And I'm still doing that with the kitchen project, but they didn't name me project manager. So I must have failed in some department. I don't know what. Um, I'm on the CCC, which could be the creative community coordinator, or it could be the, what's the other one? I don't know, it's some silly name, Never mind. And the other role is that I was part of the dream team um, because I've been here for 30, 31 years. And uh, so the first 10 years was dreaming Sangaya. And I was, part, I was privileged to be part of that. So um, yeah, I've been around a long time. I just wanted to, to add um, to what Nancy, how Nancy described her role. Um, of course, it's accurate what she's saying, but I think that you know, as one of the, the founders and one of the elders who has been around the longest, for me, one of Nancy's key roles is she really, um, I think along with other people, but Nancy in a unique way, helps to uh, hold the flame of the spirit of the original uh, vision of what Sangaya is. So when uh, even as we're going through changes and we're making adaptations to what's happening, I always turn to Nancy for that, right? Kind of like 
that original feeling of the flame of Songaya, what it was meant to be in the beginning. And it's important, I feel, to even as we're you know, dreaming about what the next 20 years is going to be. We've been around for 20 years. What's the next 20 years that we 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 do that while uh, not while continuing to honor that original vision. So for me, Nancy is that, and she's so much the the um, uh, the kind of uh, emotional thread weaver throughout the community. You know that that some Nancy is someone that every almost everyone in the community can come talk talk to and feel close to. And that is a huge important role that doesn't get captured by what, what she described as the committees and stuff that she's on. Um, I think a lot, several people, Patricia and Brian also play those kind of roles, but Nancy holds a special place for that. So I just wanted to honor that. Their philosophies and ideas about community and connection and communication and intentionality have stuck with me since then. Thanks everyone. So Miguel, I don't know if you ever really told me why you um, why you wanted to do a podcast. Why was this something that was important enough to you to dedicate an insane amount of time and effort? Mm. Yeah, I think that um, I think we had we both had similar reasons for starting the podcast, which is we wanted to make information accessible to people, um, common folk <laughs> like us, because I think we consider ourselves common folk. I mean. I say that like we're not highly educated in the field of sustainability or natural science or things like that. So we understood that this information can be complicated. So we wanted to share that information in a way that is accessible to all kinds of people. And yeah, that's pretty much why I wanted to do it. I didn't know what I wanted to do for my capstone project, but I knew that that was the that would be the purpose of it, whatever it, how, whatever form it took. What about you? Uh, yeah, very similar. Um, information accessibility is really important to me and um, equality in information is really important to me. I think that um, it is, it can be really, really challenging to learn things right now, even though we have so much information um, at our fingertips, it's really hard to get good information. Um, and it's really hard to get information that's like really useful and I think that's really important to a lot of people with um especially with climate change and sustainability because it can be really daunting and scary and overwhelming and um the information you know at the beginning when we were first thinking about this was I remember it was really really like it was talked about but it was very very scary but actually this kind of leads me into another question I swear I'm saving I'm saving a bunch the other question that this is leading me to is um, the conversation during this podcast has changed around sustainability, like in the world. At the beginning of the podcast, um, you know, we had a different political climate and the conversation was um, like people didn't talk about sustainability quite the same way. I think with the virus and the election and just kind of times changing, like there's been a lot more, um, a lot of things going on in the world that changed the broader conversation. Um, do you think that changes how you how you approached the podcast or how you feel about having put it out in this like really interesting time? Uh, what uh, do you see has changed? Can you define that a little bit more of what you think has changed globally so that that shifted the sustainability conversation? So the way the way that people talk about climate change has changed um, more people. So at the beginning of the podcast, 
less people believed that it was a human-caused disaster than now. Um, it's only been about a year, but the changes have been huge in the amount of people who accept it as a disaster or as like a human-caused problem or as something they should be concerned about. And that's been reflected in the legislation that's passed. It's been reflected in the conversations that are happening like in the news and on social media and in really important circles. And so the point of the podcast a lot was like to talk to people, to get people to understand what's going on, to get people informed. And that's kind of happened alongside our podcast, not necessarily because of it, but like anyway. Um, yeah, um, because of it. We changed the world already. Congratulations, Miguel. Call it a day. We're putting this on our resume. <laughs> Change the world before 25. Global influencers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for my opinion is that in that regard, I think our podcast is still, I don't think that changed that outside shift in perspective changes the goal of our podcast uh, because this may indirectly answer your question but I think that our goal was to not focus on the do you believe this is a human man-made do you think that climate change is man-made or not Um, because we already understood that there was overwhelming support for that argument that this is something that we are directly contributing to with our greenhouse gas emissions. So we weren't really focused on settling that debate. We were focused on, okay, now that these impacts are going to happen, what is being done now to help us prepare for that future, potential future? So we're still highlighting those things because whether people know it or agree with it or not, these changes are coming and we're going to be we're going to have to look into these kinds of solutions hopefully not hopefully sooner than later but eventually this is a really good answer you were talking about how it how educating people is important and that's kind of why you started the podcast that's something that we talked about with David Bain about the importance of early childhood education and how just having that understanding of systems thinking and natural science from an early age can help set you up for success in the future so that we don't sit in these, not pointless, but um, time-consuming debates of do we even agree on the, do we even agree on how we're interpreting the data that we have? That's kind of why it's so important to educate kids at a young age so that they can understand systems thinking and the environment around them when they have this foundation uh, of understanding, when they're dealing with problems later on, it's easier for them to grasp these concepts that otherwise may be a little bit more difficult for them to understand. Oh yeah, I remember that episode. Um, He was our guest from Friends of North Creek Forest. He talked um, about bringing everyone in, in education. And I remember specifically his, he talked about, having children design their own projects as a way of bringing in women because they're not doing male-designed projects. David also talked to us about his experience in whale biology, which is what he does for a day job. And he told us more about what he does for Friends of North Creek Forest. Let's hear from him. Hi, I'm David Bain, uh, Vice President of Friends of North Creek Forest. 
And in my non-volunteer life, I'm a killer whale biologist. And uh, when we were putting together the recovery plan for killer whales, it became apparent that what happens inland is actually more important to the whales than what's going on out at sea. So I helped found Friends of North Creek Forest to uh, protect uh, North Creek, which is a salmon-bearing stream that provides food for the whales that I study. Killer whale work I've been doing for over 40 years. I started back in the 70s. And uh, Friends of North Creek Forest is celebrating its 10th anniversary this month. So your job with the Friends of North Creek Forest as vice president, that's volunteer only? Right. Yeah, I'm a volunteer and uh, I help out with our education program. So uh, I work with our education manager and interns from Cascadia College and other nearby schools. And uh, we develop curricula to uh, teach grade school students in the area. Uh, I also work with our science committee, which does research in the forest. And uh, we also facilitate research projects by uh, Cascadia students and others who do research in the forest and uh, also do work with Cascadia students who are doing software development to help us with our research program. Thanks, David. So, Cammy, I have another question for you. Um, and we talked a little bit about this, but what do you think was the hardest part of putting together this podcast? Um, I think, hmm, it's hard to say. There's a lot of hard parts. I think probably um, being so remote. Um, I, You and I um, have not really been able to meet up the whole time. Um, so it makes it really hard to share our work. Um, so just transferring files back and forth between each other and we both work with different um, editing software so that made it really challenging to make those edits and just coordinating like um, all of the work and ideas remotely was really challenging um, and then this is the um, biggest project I've ever done with one single person for so long especially like working creatively and collaboratively with one person for so long um, and so I never, I didn't really know what to expect out of it. I learned a lot about uh, my own working style and I learned a lot about how I can um, work with other people, like uh, just about working creatively with someone else for so long um, was a very different skill that I've never done before. Um, so that was challenging, but also very informative um, for my own like life going forward and for uh, my own self-awareness. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think working creatively with someone is a lot different than working creatively by yourself or even working as part of a team on a project that isn't creative. It's just kind of like you follow these checkpoints and, and do the job. Like you can still work independently that way, but collaborating, collaborating ideas uh, creatively is a new skill and I think that not being side by side working on some of these episodes did take away a little bit of that ease that would come from working creatively with someone because I think like when you're in the same room uh, working you know talking brainstorming together you're able to connect in a different way than working separately remotely but it definitely has been a good learning experience because and I think that the pairing was between us 
uh, was definitely beneficial because, because we both do have individual perspectives that we're bringing to the table. So it was uh, up to us to find out how to incorporate both perspectives rather than being in a pairing where maybe you have the dominant perspective and the other person doesn't have as much of a perspective. So they're so you're basically both contributing to just one idea. Whereas this is us both putting our ideas together and coming up with something that is partially yours, partially mine. So yeah, I definitely like that learning part of it. Absolutely. And it, it has been really challenging because uh like uh because compromise is challenging and especially creative compromise. Or like it it's Compromise might not even be the right word because it's not necessarily like give and take. It's like building off of each other and that that can be um, difficult, but it also was really rewarding, I think, because we both had like such different perspectives and such different styles that um, that when we were able to get it together, I think we ended up with something much better than um, than if we. Yeah, like you said, like if, if, if it was just more of like one perspective um one of the episodes that wasn't very challenging was brightwater it was actually pretty straightforward um you had a really good um a really good handle on it going in and our guests just you know i think because she does those um those those tours most of the time she kind of already had like a script to go off of and we were just like along for the ride a little bit um it actually ended up being one of our smoothest episodes i think yeah, Kristen was definitely a good uh, person to talk to about what's going on at Brightwater. She had a lot of useful information to say and her educational background and her professional path kind of aligned itself perfectly for her to end up in this role. I thought that was really cool. And it's kind of like the hope that I have for myself and everyone that they find a career where their educational path and their professional experience kind of come together so perfectly. Let's hear what she had to say. My name is Kristen Covey, and I am an education coordinator with the King County Wastewater Treatment Division. And specifically, I'm also the site manager of the education center we have at Brightwater called Brightwater Center. And I've been working um, in this position for almost 10 years now. At Brightwater, I lead tours of the treatment plant. Um, I usually do groups that are a little bit older, so high school students, college students, and adult groups. And I'm also just sort of in charge of the education center building itself, just making sure things are functioning. We have an exhibit hall that um, has exhibits for the public, so just making sure um, that that is updated and working well. And then there's also a garden, <laughs> a demonstration garden on site that I also in charge of that is showcasing how you can grow vegetables with the resources that come out of the treatment process. So the recycled water and the compost. So that's also part of my job at Brightwater. And then in terms of being an education coordinator, I co-lead a high school internship program for high school youth that happens every summer. Um, and that's probably one of my favorite parts of my job. And uh, it's called the Clean Water Ambassadors Program. And then uh, I also um, coordinate career events in the spring 
for high school youth to sort of let folks know there are a lot of job opportunities in wastewater that you've probably never heard of and different career paths that are available. Um, so it's a series of events that we do um, where high school students can meet professionals in the industry. So what excited you uh, about wastewater treatment and how did you get into it? Mm, yeah, great question. Um, I never thought I would have this career when I was in high school. Um, I wanted to be a doctor or a marine biologist like everyone else. Um, so yeah, I, um, after college, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up joining an AmeriCorps program with an organization in Seattle called Earth Corps. And they are an environmental restoration nonprofit. So that was my first taste in an environmental job. Like I didn't even have environmental science as a course that was offered in high school. So it was my first exposure to the idea of like, oh, you can have a career working in the environment. Um, and I fell in love with it. So I got to work outside every day, planting trees, um, restoring public lands. And I did that for six years. I ended up um, getting hired on staff at that organization. And then I ended up realizing, okay, I can maybe think about shifting my focus for a little bit and decided I wanted to go back to school to get a master's in teaching. Knowing that I wasn't 100% sold on being a in-classroom traditional school teacher, I just thought this might open the door for other opportunities in non-traditional education. Um, but I did end up working in public school teaching for a year. Um, I think that was in 2010, like 2000. 10, 11. Yeah, that school year. And in that, during that school year, I came across um, a job opening at a wastewater treatment plant that was building an education center. And that was Brightwater. And I knew that, oh my gosh, this is the perfect um, marriage of both my environmental passion and teaching. So um, I was like, I got to apply for this. They were looking for um, educators to kind of pilot new curriculum for elementary students at the education center. And so I thought this is perfect. So um, I immediately applied and um, ended up getting hired and uh, have not left. So that's, that's basically how I got here. Um, and I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen. I, uh, I really liked hearing about her educational path and her career. They go together really well, and I think they're kind of a meandering path the way that it happened. And I think a lot of careers, a lot of the people that we talked to and a lot of people that we may look up to, um, they have had paths that weren't necessarily a straight line either. And I am definitely counting on my life going that way. So here's hoping to that. So Miguel, has this podcast changed the way that you think about careers in sustainability or professionals in the sustainable world? Uh, yeah, good question. I think so. Um, just because like Kristen, who we just heard from, um, that winding path that, she, that got her where she ended up is was kind of perfectly crafted for her. So it really opened up my mind to understanding that there's no one path that gets you to where wherever you want to go wherever you want to end up in that ideal sustainability career you kind of just have to take the value in every opportunity that is around you and in every job or 
um, volunteering position or internship that you have, like there's something that you can take with you that'll help get you to the next step. And the hope is that eventually all those next steps or all those little steps together will get you somewhere where you're happy and you feel like there's value in what you're contributing every day and you feel like you're getting value by contributing in your career. I think we're all developing skills that are going to be useful one way or another, whether that is in your career or maybe in uh, if you choose to involve yourself in activism. That's also something that I learned from talking to our final guests, which is that we all have something unique to contribute and there are ways to use that unique skill for a cause that you want to represent. Um, they all had some interesting backgrounds. So let's hear a little bit about that. Hi, I'm Sarah Holsconnect. I am the field representative with Oceana. Oceana is a international NGO dedicated to ocean conservation, working on issues like plastics, uh, sustainable fisheries, and uh, the fight against offshore drilling. I'm also a co-founder of 350 Eastside, which is a local climate advocacy nonprofit. So I came to this work uh, from a fairly circuitous path. I graduated both Cascadia and Utah Bothell the, in the business program there, and then co-founded a boutique winery located in Bothell and uh, ran that for a decade before becoming sort of increasingly aware of the gravity of the, the climate crisis that it wasn't something that was that was happening in the far off future, but that it was it was happening now and it was impacted impacting people's lives around the world uh, in the in the present moment. And so in 2017, I chose to close down the business um, that I had that I had started and run all those years, go back to school. Um, and just this past year, finished my master's in energy and climate policy at uh, Johns Hopkins. And so have sort of um, shifted gears to focus on, on climate and conservation work. Hi, I'm Jan Keller, and I have been working with Sustainability Ambassadors, which is a, a local group in our area that covers a number, it works with youth, and it covers a number of schools in our area. And the idea is to help youth to understand the knowledge and skills that they're gonna to need to rapidly advance a sustainable future. And that's on the website. I've been a coach with them. So I sort of jump in and give students ideas that might help them do more of what they are working to do. I also came to it somewhat circuitously. Um, I, I worked for years as a technical writer, writing about servers for IT professionals, for uh, information technology professionals. And all through that time, I was feeling more and more concerned about environmental issues in general and climate specifically. And um, I was looking around for how to connect. And if you go back a couple of decades, it was a lot harder to figure out what to do. Now there's more opportunities, which is great. Um, 
I did get a master's degree from Antioch University, Seattle. Um, they had a thing called the Center for Creative Change. So I did get a master's degree uh, from them around 2009. But really I've been learning a lot just by being in the groups, just by finding a group I'm interested in and trying to do some work with it. So I, I did do some work with 350 Seattle um, and then I was looking for ways to work on the east side more. And so I had a chance also to work in uh, People for Climate Action. And uh, more recently, I've been working with sustainability ambassadors. So it's been a process of being in the groups and looking around at who's there and saying, what can we do? Uh, Court Olson is the name. And I'm uh, active in several different uh, groups. Uh, most of which are focused on climate action. I'm the chairman of the steering committee for a group called People for Climate Action. And we have um, 15 different groups in King County that work with their respective cities. So that's the group I'm most involved with, but I'm pretty heavily involved also with a group called Shift Zero. And that relates to uh, my professional background in buildings. And a third group is uh, Sierra Club, and I've been pretty active with them in uh, working with Puget Sound Energy and their integrated resource planning. So kind of run in those circles. I've worked in the commercial building industry all my life and uh, been building commercial buildings for quite a while. Around the turn of this century, the U.S. Green Building Council got started, and I signed up got myself educated on green buildings. And I went to a conference once for that U.S. Green Building Council. And one of the presenters uh, showed us all a map of uh, what the United States would look like if uh, all the ice melted and then proceeded to uh, let us all know that buildings are playing a big part in uh, climate change. And so I really got hooked. And uh, not only have I been encouraging my clients to build uh, super green, uh, low impact buildings, but I've also been working in my professional circles to uh, see what we can do about it as professionals. And uh, way back in 2006, I started talking to a few professionals that I knew and, and we got together and uh, after about a year's work, we had a pretty big coalition formed and we got a bill passed that tightens the um, building energy code every three years. So by 2031, our buildings will be uh, a lot more efficient than they were when we started in 2006, like use 70% less energy. And then uh, I got the idea, well, we need to do a lot more than that. And I started up this People for Climate Action group about five years ago. So around 2015, 16. And uh, we've grown that group to be uh, a pretty big force in our different communities here in King County. And shortly after I started that, uh, another group of professionals got together and said, we need to link up and do more in the way of uh, uh, impacting the building industry. So um, I'm one of the founding members of a group called Shift Zero. And all the while doing these things, uh, I've been concerned about our energy source, specifically Puget Sound Energy 
And so in cooperation with Sierra Club, I've been involved with uh, uh, Puget Sound Energy integrated resource planning meetings since uh, 2016 as well. So kind of got all these plates spinning in the air at the same time. And there, a lot of them uh, relate to my profession and buildings account for, depending upon what city you're in, somewhere between um, 40 and 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Mark Bossler. I'm glad to have the opportunity to participate. Um, I am the uh, president of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, a health-based advocacy group uh, affiliated with the national organization, Physicians for Social Responsibility. And we focus on really th three major areas, one economic inequity, uh, the other is nuclear weapons abolition. And the third uh, is, which I'm most involved in, is uh, climate change as a health issue and environmental justice. My professional background is in uh, clinical medicine, actually still practice cardiology. And I got involved in climate issues because of the health impacts of climate change and the immediate health impacts of air pollution uh, were a, a big concern to me. And I realized that I couldn't help my patients suffering from poor air quality just by being in the exam room or in the cardiac cath lab. I had to step out and to do policy circles and advocate. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, of course. Um, wow. Thank you all. You all have some impressive, uh, you all do some impressive work. So uh, we're glad to hear from all of you. One thing I really learned from talking to that group and that I've really that's really solidified with me throughout this whole podcast has been how much we need so many different kinds of people and professions and different like uh, different perspectives in this path forward. Um, like now what? Now now we need everyone is what we have. we throughout this whole time, this whole podcast talking to so many different people and especially all of those different voices from the end it really made me realize how much we rely on everyone to change systems that are really damaging and really problematic and to go into, um, to see the world in a new way and to make it better for everyone, um, not only through climate change, but through more community and better legislation and better, you know, cleaner water and all of it. Um, we just really need everyone to be on board. And um, that has, that has been really the uh, the through line, I think, for me throughout this whole project. I, what I really like is that these people listen to that calling to action. So like Court bringing his experience in building, um, Sarah, who was a business owner, decided to turn her focus to sustainability and activism. Um, and special shout out to Sarah for going to Cascadia College and UW Bothell. So Represent. Represent. <laughs> I really like that there's no prerequisite to get involved in the way that you think we need. The world is full of problems, mm -hmm. if, like if we're being honest, but we each can, we don't have to own every problem, but we can see a problem where we can make a difference and be part of the solution and start there. Start there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Start wherever you are. You'll feel better doing something. Definitely. 
So um, I have one last question for you, Cami. Can you tell me, um, this is probably going to be a hard one, but tell me what your favorite lesson was that you've taken away from one of our speakers. My favorite lesson is uh, just like an, an amalgamation of all of the episodes um, that we have so much more power than we realize. Um, the last people from the last episode taught us all about um, our power through activism, getting together as collectives and making our voices heard in government and and legislation. And from the first episode, they taught us about our power just in you know, fire safety, like literally just like keeping fuels off of your lawn and like telling other people, you know, about what the DNR is doing because then we don't call and get them, you know, to stop when they're doing the burns that they need to do. <laughs> but also like our, like in what we flush the toilet, we have, we have a lot of power. Um, and we, I think I knew that going into this, but um, now I know it a lot more viscerally and a lot more specifically for those that can't see I'm shaking my head very very severely <laughs> because I agree 100% I think um you said it perfectly like all everything we've learned along with each episode has kind of it was kind of like the perfect um progression to that last episode the one before this just little examples of how we all have power in these little ways in these specific areas. So obviously we've learned, um, you know, a lot from everyone, whether it's the fire episode, the water episode, education, even the collaboration episode with Noah and Emily. Um, we definitely learned that there are solutions out there and we have uh, the power to implement some of those solutions or be part of those solutions. But I kind of have to side with you. I think the last episode uh, with the different activists really showed me that we are able to make a difference and it's doable. Like we actually can get involved, even if it seems intimidating. There are access points for everyone. Let's not let that power go to waste. And there's no right or wrong way necessarily to be involved as long as you're doing something or trying to do something or working towards something, then that is enough. You'll know, you'll know from within if there's more you could be doing and you just have to listen to that and not ignore it. Even when we make mistakes, um, it's not wasted effort because we grow a lot through them. And I just hope that, um, through this whole project, even though we made so many mistakes and we learned so much that some of that message that we learned doing it about the power and about sustainability and about um, all of the things that we learned, I hope that that really came through, even through, you know, some of our maybe clunkiness of, of our inexperience. Yeah, I second that um, because it's one thing for you and me that are going through this experience to um, come to those conclusions, but hopefully that comes through to our to the listeners it really is as possible as we're making it sound like we can get involved so I definitely plan to dedicate some of my time um, to becoming more involved after um, after I graduate oh yeah absolutely um, so is there are there any other thoughts that you want to leave with the audience that you weren't able to talk about today or anything that you want to tell the audience that you 
haven't found a, a place for it in the podcast so far. Of course, I think there's definitely more that we can elaborate on about things that we've already talked about or maybe things that we weren't able to really touch on. But I think I'll just end with something similar to what you were saying, which is even if you make a mistake, whatever that means, um, you're still learning and you're still growing. So it's okay. Um, You just continue that effort because it's not, it's not a wasted effort if you're at least trying and just being aware of the fact that you can improve is um, a step in the right direction in itself. So we're all human. We're not robots that we can program ourselves to just keep going and going in one direction without end, um, without fail. So we just have to be patient and understanding with ourselves, even if we don't act in ways that we know we should or would want to, and trust that we'll get there, you know, in our own time, uh, at our own pace. What about you, Cami? Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Um, yeah, like you said, so much. Um, there's so much. I mean, you have a lot more power than you realize. And you will feel so much better about everything if you start like living more intentionally about the things that you want out of life. If you're concerned about climate change, start getting involved and doing something about it. If you want to feel more connected to people then talk to your neighbors and people on the bus and people in the grocery store and see if you can start a garden together, you know? Um, Just do what you, um, I don't know, just being more intentional about your life um, and then moving forward. Nicely said, Cammie. We did it. Thanks for listening to our final episode of Climate Change is Happening, Now What? If you want to know more about the people that you heard from in this episode, check out our other episodes. If you want to reach out to us with any questions or get familiar with our campuses, visit our Instagram pages, UWB Sustainability and Sustainability at Cascadia. To find out more about our sustainability efforts, visit uwb.edu sustainability and cascadia.edu B-A-S-S-P. Thank you all for joining us today on the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast. That's all from us, but stay tuned to the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast where you'll hear more mini-series from other students, and of course, our hosts, Stefan and Alexa. I just wanted to say thank you to Miguel for being such a great teammate. This has been a lot more work than it sounds like, and he was totally willing to jump on board with things that were not... um, his ideas or were not necessarily what he signed up for and even when I was completely willing to give up on myself he encouraged me to figure out how I could make my ideas work and challenge myself and the partnership by actually playing out the ideas that I had. It helped me to realize more about myself and my learning style in a supportive environment. I think it made a really big difference in both of our experiences and the end result of the podcast.